Welcome to the Deep Dives podcast here on the No Ceilings NBA Podcast Network. I am your host, Nick Agar-Johnson, and today I have back with me fellow New York native, fellow Yankee fan going through a tough time, but it's always fun when I get to talk to him on this here podcast. Albert, Albert, how are you doing this fine afternoon? Um, well, after that intro, I'm not sure how I'm feeling. Yeah, okay, um, fair it is. <laughs> no, it's always great to be back. Um, anytime Nick sends the, the, the message to come on, it's... It's, it's exciting times. So I'm here. I'm excited. I wrote something recently that I think people read and I'm ready to talk about it. Well, I can promise you that I read it multiple times, in fact. So let's get started on your article. And we have to start, of course, with the key subject of your article, the most important part of the piece that we have to talk about today, the Uline utility wagon from... That, that's that's really what we're here to talk about today. So, Albert, what are your thoughts on the uh, Uline utility wagon? Um, okay, so uh, initial thought is if you don't own one, own one, please own one as soon as possible. It is one of the best purchases I've ever made in my life. And I, you can't tell from the photo, but all four wheels can turn on their on their own it's literally a four by four drive four wheel drive it's excellent the swivel um that's in the photo it it comes up and it's at a perfect height for you to drag stuff and it it moves in different directions it's huge it's great for when you go grocery shopping great for when you go out for some sort of outdoor adventure whether it's the park or the beach or wherever it is literally one of the best things i've ever bought and if any of my close friends would tell you i am literally a as i wrote in my piece right i said i'm a member of the church of consumerism i make money to spend money it's the type of person that i am and of all the things i've bought this is the best thing i've ever bought in my life yeah i'm just reading the line about you know instead of making four to five trips back and forth from the car i can load up my wagon once and i'm flying high man that sounds like heaven right there just you know only one trip get it all in you know even if it's a huge costco run just all in one trip man that's the dream right there it's it's literally the best for when you go to costco because what are you doing at costco you're buying things in bulk and those whatever it is that you buy is gigantic you can buy toilet paper and you're buying 900 um uh, of them so it's it's fantastic i absolutely love it this is actually less nonsense than we usually start our podcast with so i think you know only three minutes of nonsense in is a is a pretty good line for us no we are here to talk about the actual subject of the article not where you started the article but the actual subject of the article kobe buffkin the essential guard and you know it's funny because there's a reason why you started your piece with the description of the utility wagon and why we started this podcast with the description of the utility wagon Kobe Bufkin is someone who it admittedly took me a little bit of time to turn around on him as compared to some of the other guys at No Ceilings. So why don't we start off here with your thoughts on Kobe Bufkin? Why did you choose to write about him for this piece? I, I think for me, Nick, and this is something that I've even mentioned in our group chat, but I, I've never been the guy who finds a prospect first. Um I've kind of always been a slow burn type of guy. I like to let the season kind of develop. I like to let guys play a little bit before I um, kind of plant my flag and say that I'm, you know, a huge fan or whatever. I kind of like to let guys play their way through, you know, mistakes and successes and whatever. And so Buffkin was a guy that obviously Metcalf has kind of been banging the drum for all season long from New Zealand's NBA, one of our own. And, you know, a guy that obviously was on the radar, but, you know, 
I, I kind of wanted to let him kind of go through the whole season. It wasn't like Jed Howard where I fell in love right away. But after doing the deep dive of him, actually, I did my like first like truly deep, true deep dive of him on my way to Portland to the Nike Hoop Summit where I dove into literally everything that I could. And I walked away thinking, oh, this is a guy that could play on any NBA team. This is a guard that I feel like any NBA team would really be interested in adding to their uh, to their roster and the type of guy that I think makes sense in the current NBA. And, and, and I think the main point that I was trying to make about his game was with his ability, talent, high floor, high ceiling, all those things together. I just felt like he's the type of guy that could end up playing in a conference finals one day. And I, for me, if you find yourself, you know, buying into a player, being a guy that could eventually play in a conference finals or an NBA finals, uh, you should probably grab that guy and not be afraid of grabbing that guy with a pretty high pick as well. So we'll get into some of the more specific details in a bit, but I did just want to sort of start off with your intro to the offense section of the Kobe Bufkin breakdown. And it's funny because, you know, as you mentioned, just watching him play on the offensive end is really aesthetically pleasing. And it's funny because I tend to sort of look at things in a very bifurcated way with this exact type of player where it's like, I really loved Karis LeVert as a prospect. And, you know, Shea Gilgis-Alexander Shea had a very similar thing where it's like, the entire, you know, sort of value of their offensive game is they play at a sort of weird rhythm that nobody else can really figure out and catch up to. And so, you know, they, you know, get their points by, you know, throwing guys off with hezzies and then, you know, getting around them to a mid-range shot where it's like, okay, you know, the value here is that you play at a different rhythm than everybody else. And then there are the Kobe Buffkins of the world where it's just, oh, this looks really easy. You know, it's not like sort of the Karis LeVert SGA thing where it's like, man, this looks kind of awkward and strange, but it works, right? With Bufkin, it's just, oh, okay, this makes a lot of sense. No, I, I agree with you. I, I definitely think there isn't an awkwardness to his game, but, um, I, you know, I, at the same time, though, I, I don't think it was too different from what you saw in Levert and Shea Gilgis as well, just because, because like, I, I feel like those guys, yeah, they had some awkwardness, but also fluidity as well. And I think that's what Bufkin has for sure. And that was the thing that I really wanted to highlight with him is that he makes basketball like you mentioned he makes basketball look easy but also very aesthetically pleasing to watch it, it just seems like he's very like he's very sure of himself he knows where he's going and it seems like he has uh, a plan in terms of how he wants to get to where he wants to get to and um you know when you see a guy like that who has that type of confidence, has that type of ability and moves the way that he does. And I think also it's like a visual thing with him because he has such long legs that, you know, when he takes these strides, it's, you know, he doesn't, maybe he doesn't have to take as many strides as, you know, smaller guys or guys with shorter legs have to. But just overall, there's something really beautiful uh, about his game that goes beyond the numbers, that goes beyond the analytics, where if you were somebody who didn't know the game at all, but you just happened to watch him play live or on on film you'd be like oh this this guy is really interesting to watch there's something about the way that he plays that you know makes you want to watch more of him i think the key there with buffkin you know as opposed to the other guys i was talking about is you know sort of the level of control that he plays with you know that's really i think where karis levert stood out to me is sometimes he wouldn't look like he quite knew where he was going either but you know he'd, he'd figure it out and it'd work out because 
you know, nobody would know where he's going. And all of a sudden he's 12 feet from the basket with an ocean of space. And it's like, well, I got to be able to do something with this, right? With Buffkin, it's more like, you know, he gets where he's going and it's like, oh, okay, I see what he was trying to do there, right? As opposed to there's a lot more sort of controlled chaos in that Karis Levert archetype that I, you know, in mostly a good way, don't quite see with Buffkin. Yeah, no, you're right. I think the control one is a really good, good point. And, um, you know, it, 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 it definitely showed itself, you know, I, I think he was able to flash more of that as the season went on, as you know, he was given um, more opportunity with the ball in his hands to run more pick and roll to, you know, get, get the offensive set going. And so I know I, I definitely agree with you. And, and it's a really interesting, interesting aspect of his game, because when you start thinking about his outlook as a prospect, what type of role he's going to be asked to play on the next level. I, I think it can go a lot of different ways. I think some people may see him straight up as a combo, a guy who can do a little bit of this, a little bit of that in terms of, you know, between the going from the one and the two. Some people may see him as a lead guard, a guy that you can kind of just throw the keys to and be like, hey, you drive the car. You drive the offense. You kind of run everything. And then at the same time, I, I think they're uh, on the other side, of the coin, I think some people may be like, oh, he could be a really good off-ball guy, a, a, a two-guard, a guy that plays off of other guys as he kind of did at Michigan for a lot of the time, playing off of a Hunter Dickinson, playing off of a Jed Howard. So I, I think, once again, you know, that's kind of the crux of what I was trying to kind of nail home with him is that he's such a versatile offensive weapon that any team that gets him, they're going to kind of have, you know, open runway to do what they want with him in terms of his – uh, development and the path they want him to take but i i think he's a really interesting prospect because of all the diff different outcomes for him and something that i talk about on here to the point where people who listen to this podcast frequently are probably fed up with it is how much i talk about you know different ways that guys can play their way into rotations and i think you hit the nail on the head there with Buckin, right it's like if you're a team that really needs a backup point guard who you can rely on to make good decisions, be a decent shooter, attack the rim, he can do that. If you need someone who, okay, you know, we think of you more as an off-ball guy, right? You're going to be the two alongside a bigger point guard, and, you know, you'll probably get the smaller guard assignment defensively, but, you know, that's fine. What you'll mostly be asked to do on offense is, you know, space the floor as an off-ball guy. Or there could be a team that's like, okay, you know what? What we really don't have that we really need is someone to come off the bench and just pour in points, right? We need extra juice to our offense. We really like our starting five, but we think that Kobe Bufkin is someone who can come in and be, you know, a, a go-getter scorer off the bench, right? You know, with Bufkin, unlike some other prospects, because he has this sort of well-varied skill set, there are a lot of different contexts that could make sense for him. You know, when we're talking about fit with prospects, right, a lot of it is, you know, some players, if they end up in the right situation, they could turn into the best version of themselves. And if they don't, it could get ugly. I mean, you know, I talked about this recently with uh, Rucker on last week's episode where it's like, you know, Noah Clowney is someone who I think if he ends up in the right place, it could go really well for him. If he ends up in the wrong place, he might, you know, go to his second team faster than people are anticipating. With Bufkin, it's not the kind of situation where it has to be a quote unquote perfect fit because there are a variety of roles that he could succeed in. No, I, I love everything that you said, right? I, I think the biggest thing with me when I looked at him and along the lines of what I was saying before, um, the path to him seeing the floor in the NBA is not that complicated for me because I think he flashed enough shooting off ball, but also like, so to give you an example, when you watch a team like the Cleveland Cavaliers who were dispatched by the Knicks, um, 
in the first round. Um, <laughs> Were they Albert? Were they really Albert? <laughs> <laughs> but watching that team, right? Watching uh, JB Bickerstaff kind of have to play Donovan Mitchell and uh, Darius Garland as much as he had to, and we're not really having an option off the bench. Really, you know that that's a great example of you know the type of role that Kobe Buffkin can play. And NBA teams, playoff teams, they need another guard to come in off the bench to you know, settle things down. Sometimes run the offense, or even you know be a guy who can spread the floor and offer some secondary stuff. And I think Buffkin is that guy from day one. He's going to be a guy that a, a team's going to bring in and they're going to be really excited about what he can offer from day one and also what he's going to offer two to five years later, you know, as he continues to develop. And a guy who, and I, and I hate to be the Nick fan who brings up a Nick player, but a guy like Emmanuel Quickly, right, who in year one was a lot of fun because he was running around just taking a lot of threes and throwing up floaters all over the place. But now he's a more mature guard, a guy that you can kind of uh, trust to run the offense here and there and a guy who still offers that same spacing and can do more right now from the mid-range and inside and with his passing so um obviously he's had a tough playoffs but still he's offering value as a better defender now and i think that's going to be buffkin and we're going to talk about his defense later but i, I just feel like he's going to be a guy who can offer you a ton as a versatile offensive player all right we're going to take a quick break and we will get back into the kobe buffkin breakdown right after this all right, so we've done sort of a general overview of the Kobe Buffkin experience. Let's sort of get into more of the specifics here. And starting with the stuff on the offensive end, you mentioned this, and it was you know very interesting to me. Kobe Buffkin played multiple different roles on offense for this Michigan team throughout the season. And that, I think, is a huge part of why I you know have boosted him up my boards as much as I have, is over the course of the season, he showed that he can – be effective in a variety of different roles. You know, earlier on in the season, he was mostly an off-ball guy. You know, most of the offense was running through Hunter Dickinson and Jet Howard. And as the season went on, Jet Howard started being slightly less involved in the creation aspect of the offense. Hunter Dickinson, as you mentioned, continued to get 600 touches in the paint every game. But, you know, that's kind of how it is sometimes. But it is, you know, very telling for what Kobe Buffkin can do in a variety of different contexts that he was able to be as successful as he was playing multiple different roles, you know, not just over the course of his college career, but over the course of a few months, you know, towards the end of the season. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think that's kind of the beauty of being in college and, you know, having the opportunity to try different things. But I, I think with, along the lines of what you're saying with Jed Howard, you know, once he suffered that ankle injury, I think things really changed a lot, not only for him, but for the team at large. And I think, you know, that's when we started to see Buffkin run some more pick and roll. And he had more responsibility responsibility with the ball in his hands. And I thought he did a great job. I think some of the stuff that he was able to flash with, you know, his shooting in the mid range, his passing, his ability to get all the way to the cup, as you mentioned, with the beautiful fluidity that he has, but also, you know, having the savvy to use hesitations and head fakes and whatever to get all the way to the basket was really impressive. But I think one of the main things that stuck out to me was, you know, his mid range shooting, I think is really, really important because if we start talking about his outlook as a guy becoming one day a number one or number two option for a team 
um, something Corey and I talk about all the time on the Draft Ag NBA pod, shameless plug, is that all the elite scorers are fantastic in the mid-range. Or, I mean, at least they have that in their bag. And I think that's something with Bufkin that he was able to show with uh, more volume um, and more usage that he can hit that jump shot from the mid-range. He can manipulate things from there. And that's a real weapon as a scorer because, you know, something that I, I, I talked about recently was that a lot of times when we think about spacing, we think about, all the way out to the three-point line, right? And we think that, okay, if you can hit the three, then it's going to open up the floor. But also these guys that can hit mid-range jumpers, that also creates spacing as well. You know, when you're running the pick and roll and they're running drop coverage on you and the and the ball handler can ha- kind of nail that mid-range pull-up, then the big's going to start thinking about things, right? The big can't drop so low. And then from there, different options come from that. So I, I think with Bufkin, he was able to flash a lot of that later on in the season, even in, in the NIT. And I think that alone really got me really excited about his outlook. It's interesting. You know, the whole sort of discussion around mid-range jumpers tends to sort of fall into the camp of, oh, are you pro-analytics or anti-analytics? And I tend to my, think of myself as someone who's more pro-analytics, certainly more pro than anti. But, you know, I think the idea there with the mid-range jumper is mid-range jumpers are getting phased out from guys who aren't that good at taking them. Right. Like the guys who are 35% mid range shooters, they're being told, all right, either you back that up five feet or you don't take that shot. Right. When we're talking about, you know, elite mid range scorers, those guys are like, Chris Paul shoots something ridiculous, like 50% on his mid range jumpers. That's not a shot you want to take out of your team's diet. Right. It's the idea is not, oh, all mid range jumpers are the devil and therefore we should excise them from our lineup, you know, with holy water and crosses and, you know, (laughs) whatever if necessary. Right. But, you know, the idea with the, mid-range scorers who can actually do it well, right? As you mentioned, that provides an incredibly important spacing element to the offense. I mean, you know, we talked about this quite a bit with Jaden Ivey last season where there were a lot of concerns among the No Ceilings crew about, okay, if he's forced off the three-point line and can't get all the way to the rim, what does he do, right? With Kobe Bufkin, that is not a concern. And, you know, there's, I'm not going to say that Kobe Bufkin is Jaden Ivey. They're exceptionally different players in a number of different ways. But, you know, the general sort of foundation for the idea here is, if you're a really, really good mid-range shooter who can, you know, get yourself those looks in a short period of time if the shot clock is winding down or, you know, can get, you know, can create your way into a mid-range look that teams either have to let you take it or get yourself all the way to the basket, that does open up a lot for the offense because there isn't just sort of a dead area in the middle of the floor, right? It's an area that if you're good enough at exploiting it, it can be efficient offense. And Kobe Bufkin is among the group that is more than good enough at exploiting those kinds of looks. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. I love what you said, Ben. I I really agree with that. I think it's the mid-range shot is a shot that is becoming extinct for guys who are just bad at taking it. But if you are good at taking it, then 100%, you should hold on to it and continue to take it because it is a very useful weapon and tool. And, And looking at Bufkin, man, just looking at his overall numbers from his freshman season to his sophomore season, of course, the minutes per game and all that is use is overall time on the floor went up by a ton, but I just love that the numbers went up all across the board, right? His field goal percentage from year one to year two went from 38% to 48.2%. That's really good, right? On twos, he went from 51% to 54.6. On threes, he took 1.3 per game his freshman season at 22%. His sophomore season, he took 3.7 per game at 35%. And 35% is league average, right? That's pretty good. Free throw 
right? He went from 77 to 85%. That's now really, you're speaking my language. Exactly. That's a really, really good number. And something that I know the two of us have talked about and Corey and I talk about all the time as well, but free throw shooting is a great litmus test for how you're going to kind of turn out to be as a shooter and being an 85% free throw shooter. I get it only on 2.6 attempts per game, but still he could have been a 65% on 2.6 attempts per game. And you could still make that argument. Oh, you know, not, small sample size, whatever. I'd rather have a guy shooting 85% than 65% on a small sample size every single time. And so um, the fact that he was at 85% and you see it on the film too. And in my article, I, I tried to be fair. I even uh, posted a compilation of his misses, right? Because I wanted to make it known that I, I thought he was a really good shooter and a guy who's going to continue to get better. But there are things that I, I think he can tighten up. And something that Corey pointed out that I mentioned as well is that he, he can let that elbow flare, his shooting elbow flare a little bit. I thought at times his base was a little bit narrow. But, you know, these are not things that you have to make wholesale changes to fix. I think these are small, minor mechanical things that you can fix to get him from 35% to maybe 37%, 38%, even higher. Who knows, right? And I think um, considering all that, I, it's, I, I just, I think he's going to be really good. I think he's going to be really, really good. And I really believe in the shooting. I'm glad you brought up the shooting stuff. That was actually something that I touched on when I wrote about Kobe Bufkin a couple of weeks ago as part of my latest editor's notes article. And where I sort of came out on it there was ultimately, even if his shot isn't quite, you know, in the 35% range, right? Like, you know, there was, there was a period this season, I think it was in November, where he shot worse than he shot last year, like 18% from three or something like that. And it's like, okay, you know what? Maybe that 35% number was a little bit higher than where his true, quote unquote, true level of shooting sits, right? Even if that is the case, I still think that Kobe Bufkin is going to find a way to be a valuable NBA player because I think there's so much else to his game. Like if we're just talking about him as like, okay, you know, someone who can make the right read as a passer and, you know, be effective at driving to the basket, you know, make good decisions with the ball in his hands, make good decisions as an off ball guy. Even if he's only like a low thirties, three point shooter, as opposed to a mid to high thirties, three point shooter. I still think there's enough in the rest of his offensive game that there will be a place for him in the NBA. It's more just if he can, you know, make those little minor corrections, you know, if he can flare out a little bit less than maybe, as you mentioned, he does get to that point where he's not just an average three point shooter, but a really good three point shooter. And certainly the free throw numbers would point towards that being a possibility, but even if it doesn't come through, I think there's enough to the rest of his offensive game that there's still a lot to like, even if you aren't fully bought in on the shooting. Yeah, no, I agree. But I, I think for me personally, I just believe in the shooting. Um, sure. It's as simple as that. I, I just yeah. feel like I, I think it's going to come around. Not that it, it, it even has to come around. Like, I think it's going to get better. I, I really do. And I, I think just looking at it, um, I think, yeah, with those minor mechanical fixes, I think he can be a very, very good shooter. But, you know, kind of piggybacking off of everything that you just said, Nick, I think it is important to highlight the other aspects of his offensive game where I, I really enjoyed him attacking the rim. You know, I, I I think he needs to bulk up. That's something I mentioned many times in my piece. Um, adding some mass, adding some strength will definitely benefit him, especially when he gets going all the way to the cup. And in terms of, you know, embracing contact and playing through that and finishing through that, I think is going to be very important. But he had a lot of savvy. He's a guy that knows how to use his length to his advantage. He's not the fastest, most explosive guard out there, but I thought he had enough burst to get going downhill. Um, 
as a lefty, you know, lefties will generally have an advantage in terms of getting to, you know, finishing at the rim. But I, I just overall, I, I really liked what I saw. And um, I thought he showed a really good touch and, uh, around the rim and in the mid range is something we've mentioned before. Um, but the biggest thing for me was the passing. I, I really enjoyed the passing a lot. Um, I don't know if he'll ever be a 10 assist per game type of guy, but at the same time, does that, I mean, does it matter that much? I mean, if he can be a high level scorer and average, excuse me, if he can average five to six assists per game, I think that's pretty damn good. And I think he can get to that number because he showed it when, when he was given kind of the reins to run the offense and run pick and roll thought he made a lot of high level reads and the fact that he can make passes with both hands and he can you know the, do the whole live dribble stuff with both hands with his offhand I thought was really interesting and I thought he showed great timing and savvy and accuracy and um you know manipulation even with his eyes I, I think all that stuff was really nice to see and if he had if he had more of an opportunity to flash that I think we would have been even more excited by what we saw so we'll definitely dive into the passing stuff in more depth in a little, but I do just want to sort of circle back to the finishing at the rim stuff before we move on to that. This is where what we were talking about earlier really comes into play, where the fact that his role changed pretty dramatically over the last two months of the season as opposed to the start of the season is really indicative because we saw a lot more of Kobe Vakin unleashed as a downhill attacker sort of down the stretch of the season than we saw earlier on in the year. And, you know, a huge part of that is just with Jed Howard missing time with injury, the Michigan offense required Kobe Bufkin to have a lot more of a central role. And therefore they were more focused on getting him downhill because, Hey, we lost our second offensive option, right? With Hunter Dickinson, obviously being the prime offensive option, you know, clearly the best scorer on the Michigan roster, you know, obviously the guy who the ball should touch his hands 700 times per possession, you know, but With Bumpkin, I mean, we saw a lot more of sort of the upside, I think, is the best way I can put it. Like, you know, what he can do at his absolute best when Jed Howard was out because we got to saw, well, we got to see more opportunities with Bumpkin having the ball in his hands rather than being sort of the more complimentary piece. No, yeah, 100%. I think a game that comes to mind is um, the Indiana game. Um, mm-hmm. This was later in the season. I know by then, I'm pretty sure by then Jet was, you know, already hurt. I mean, the way that he moved in that game wasn't the best, but I, I think it, it, he, he had some big-time plays in that game. I think that was a game that he had the dunk on the baseline um, over TJD. He had a couple nice drives to the rim, and I think uh, with everything that you're mentioning, Nick, there there is this uh, – once again, he's not the most explosive guy, um, isn't going to be soaring through the sky or anything, but does a really good job with his angles, does a good job with um, changing speeds and using his length and getting really low with the dribble to kind of, you know, maneuver through and get skinny sometimes even, you know, to get through, you know, when they, in terms of uh, splitting the pick and roll and stuff like that. So uh, I'm with you, man. I, I think uh, kind of going back back to what I said before, though, like I think the ability to uh, the fact that he is ambidextrous, I think it helps him a lot, man. I think it helps him with his handle, helps him with his finishing around the rim. He was able to flash some nice right hand finishes last year, uh, kind of Mike Conley esque, and uh, and you know he Mike Conley was one of the comps that I put in there for him, and I think you know it 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 really makes you wonder, right? If he had that much um usage and that much of a runway to do all that stuff early on in the year how things may have turned out and also i wonder like what his numbers would have looked like as well but overall i 
I loved it all. I, well, no, I shouldn't say loved it all, but no, I, I enjoyed a lot of it. A lot of it is probably more accurate representation. I think the ambidexterity is really huge to point out. I mean, you know, it's funny because we were talking about Jaden Ivey earlier, right? A huge part of the book on Jaden Ivey was, oh, just force him to his left. He can't do anything with his left. He's just so right-hand dominant. And, you know, there are many, many, many players who we can think of, you know, going back all the way to J.J. Reddick's favorite, Bob Cousy, you know, guys who are only good with one hand, right? It's like, you know, that's that's something that guys can work around. But not having to work around that from the start is is a huge plus, especially with, you know, I say this all the time as well, but, you know, the feet that you get in the college game are inches in the NBA. And so the ability to just be able to finish with the left rather than have to wrap back around to the other side, you know, it just makes a lot of the more difficult finishes around the basket easier. And especially earlier on in an NBA career, you know, the fewer things that you have to learn on the fly, the easier it's going to be for you to get playing time. And, you know, it's something that's, you know, it seems pretty small. And in many ways it is pretty small, right? I mean, again, you know, we can talk about the number of guys who, you know, as a New York Knicks fan, I'm sure there were many days when you would have wished that Julius Randle was just a little bit better at going to his other hand, right? You know, there are players you can work around that, but not having to work around that is a leg up that Kobe Bufkin will have around the basket that many other guards coming out of college will. Yeah, no, 100%. It was one of the my my favorite things about him, kind of going into the deep dive and watching him finish with the right hand, watching him able to take, you know, three, four dribbles right and then pull up. Um, watching him, you know, being able to make passes with that hand. I know we'll get to the passing later, but overall, just like I, I it's a, it's an interesting wrinkle to have, and something that I think about a lot um, in terms of guys and you know their out, offensive outlooks and things like that. Is the more you have to to make the defense think, the better you'll be. And the yeah. more layers you have, and the more uh, little you know quirks and tools and tricks you have up your sleeve, all those things help. Um, combined, they become a bigger and bigger problem for the defense. So, you know, him being ambidextrous, I think, as you mentioned, is really, really important. And I, I think, I think it's great. I think he's, it's great that he has it. And I'm excited to see him do more. Like, you know, Mike Conley's, a, anytime you watch a game that Mike Conley's playing in, the, 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 they're going to talk about the fact that he likes taking layups with his right hand. And I think um, it's because he's used it to, to his benefit throughout his long NBA career. And I'd like to see the same for Bufkin. All right, let's move on to the passing discussion here. And this is a very interesting one because his passing stood out to me as what distinguishes him as, you know, more than just a two guard, right? He's good enough, more than good enough as a passer to, as you mentioned, you know, we were talking about up top, right? The idea of some teams might even see him as a lead guard, you know, other teams will see him as a combo, but someone who you definitely want to have the ball in their hands, not just as a scorer, but also as a playmaker. And, you know, his opportunities to get to the basket, you know, there were more plays run for him to get downhill as the season progressed. But I think, you know, what really stood out to me the most with Bufkin down the last couple months of the season is just how quickly he filled in for Jed Howard as a playmaker. I mean, that's, you know, we talked about this when we talked about Jed Howard earlier this year, but, you know, he's an exceptional playmaker for his size, but, you know, they didn't just lose Jed Howard shooting when he was injured, right? They also lost, you know, his, his ability to come in and make good plays for others, right? And that's the area where Bufkin showed a lot to me in terms of, okay, you know, this is not just, you know, your typical undersized two guard, right? This is a dude who can make passes, who can make plays for others, and isn't just someone you want to be like a microwave scorer type or just a purely off-ball guard. He has enough juice with the ball in his hands to, you know, potentially be able to fill 
you know, I wouldn't quite say I'd think of him as a primary point guard, but you know, he can fill in there when he needs to, which is maybe not something I would have been as confident in in say December. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. I think for me, the passing was really the swing skill that got me into thinking mm-hmm. maybe he could be a one. Um, and, and of course, like, it, no, actually, for me, if anything, him being able to pass was, was the swing skill that got me into thinking like he could really be anything that he wants. Um, and left in center. Okay. <laughs> but you, you know what I mean? Like, I, yeah, I felt yeah. like, you know, that's a skill that really kind of opens up the doors for him to be a lot of different things. And why I think NBA teams should be excited about taking a guy like this because you can kind of mold him into whatever the hell you want him to be and what you think would be best for him and for the team. And I think, um, I, I know Nathan's uh, tweeted about this a couple of times that he thinks that Buffkin could eventually become a lead guard one day. Um, and I don't, want to fight him on that because i think it's possible like uh, he really is that good of a passer if you watch him pass the ball like he he's got great timing he knows how to manipulate things and you know to kind of wait for windows to open for plays to develop and for guys to kind of get to their spots um as i mentioned a million times already he can make passes with both hands which is a really important thing like it, it shouldn't be slept on me because like as you mentioned right those inches those millimeters whatever um those tight windows if you can squeeze them in with your offhand that makes a huge difference and it's something that we we, we we can even talk about like in soccer right there's a reason why you have a left-footed center back and a right-footed center back because you want to if you want to build a play from the back you know having those guys being able to spray the ball on their respective sides faster actually makes a difference and it's the same thing with buffkin the fact that he can make passes with his offhand is huge and, and it's a huge part of the of his intrigue and why we need to start asking the question it could this guy eventually be a number one or even if he's a combo, right? A guy that can play number one for you a little bit or can run the second unit and stuff like that. That That's a really interesting player and a wrinkle that a lot of guards may not have at all. Like we have guys like Jordan Hawkins in this draft who's an unbelievable shooter, right? But his passing is not what Buffkins is. You know, he doesn't his have- His passing that. is he's an unbelievable shooter. Okay, good. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. He manipulates the floor in a different way. But in, in terms of being able to run an offense, being able to settle things down and kind of make the correct decisions, that's what's so exciting about Buffkin for me. And then the reason why I started dreaming a little bit bigger for his outcome. It's funny because this Buffkin discussion reminds me a lot of a discussion that Tyler Metcalf and I had many, many times back when he was my co-host before he abandoned me, uh, of the idea of guys like Devin Booker and Zach Levine, right, who come into the NBA as not pass first or pass second or even pass third guys. And they're given this opportunity on, let's just say, not the greatest teams, you know, those Zach Levine, Timberwolves teams, those early Devin Booker Suns teams, right? And it's like... They're, pay- they're playing through a lot of pain to develop to the point where, okay, you know what? If we're having this guy run the offense in stretches, it's not too bad. And, you know, you can see the passing growth from, you know, Devin Booker these days as opposed to Devin Booker, you know, very beginning of his career. Zach Levine is a playmaker these days as opposed to at the very beginning of his career. It's a dramatic leap forward. And that's because, you know, their teams wanted to develop those skills in them, put them in situations where they would have to develop those skills. And, just sort of, you know, ate the bad plays, right? With Kobe Bufkin, you're starting out at a higher level there, right? And if you decide we're going to mold this guy into our lead guard, you know, he's shown quite a bit of passing development, you know, just from what we've seen from him this season. And it's something that, you know, Metcalf and I talked a decent amount about last year with 
two players really more than anybody else with Alondis Williams versus Iverson Molinar, where one of the things that Metcalf and I both really loved about Iverson Molson, about Iverson Molinar's game was that he almost always made the right decision. You know, he wasn't someone who was throwing a wild 65 foot outlet pass through two guys legs on the way to a perfect dive at the basket. But if there was an open read, he would see it and he would make the play, the pass. Right. Whereas with Alondis Williams, he turned the ball over a lot more. He also got a lot more assists because he was, you know, going for those home run passes, right? You know, that's the kind of thing where with Buffkin right now, I feel like we don't see a lot of those home run passes, but I feel like that's also better for his game, right? Where it's like, okay, you know what? I'm not going to do the Taron Armstrong here, but I'm going to see the right read. I'm going to make the right pass and it's going to be an easy two points. You know, maybe it would have been and even easier, you know, two points if I hit that guy on the other side, but I would have had to throw it through someone's legs. I'm just going to make the right pass, the easy pass. With Buffkin, if he's put in a situation where, you know, he's drafted to an NBA team and they say, all right, you're going to be our backup point guard. So your responsibility is to, you know, run the show, make good passes. And, you know, if you make a few mistakes along the way, we're fine with that, right? As long as it helps you sort of figure it out, learn the position, learn where you're supposed to be in on offense, learn, you know, what's best for you in terms of making playmaking reads. That's the kind of thing where if he's developed in that situation intentionally, he's got a lot more foundation than some other guys who came into the league and were given those responsibilities. And, you know, maybe it was a little bit ugly at times. Certainly it was for Levine and Booker in terms of their playmaking stuff, but they emerged out the other side as much better playmakers than they were coming in. I could easily see that kind of path with Buffkin. The main difference being, I think he's starting from a higher point than either of those two guys were. Yeah, I agree with everything that you said. I think there is a maturity to his passing. Um, there is, I don't, I don't even want to say the word conservative because I, I don't think that really <laughs> describes his passing either. I, I think it's more of, he's a guy that knows his strengths um, a guy that doesn't try to play outside of himself. He knows himself well. Um, and he's a really smart, cerebral player that wants to make the right decisions. And I think um, that shouldn't penalize him as a passer. It's a, it's a good thing. It's a good, good quality to have. And as you mentioned, he may not be the flashiest, but at the same time, like there were some flashes too. You know, watching him pass, like, yeah, of course, like he's really good at, you know, the the entry passes into Hunter Dickinson. He was good at, you know, because he's got a lot of practice with entry passes to Hunter Dickinson. Bingo, bingo. But uh, I'm sorry, Hunter and his family. I've taken way too many shots at the guy. (laughs) But even with like dribble handoffs and pick and roll stuff, you know, he was able to make you know, strong passes, not even just to the, you know, to the weak side corner, but whether it's the weak side wing or to the strong side corner or whatever, like he, he just does a lot of really smart things. And I think he had a really good grip uh, of um, a good understanding of what was going on on the, on the court at all times and was just able to make good, smart and, you know, beneficial decisions, if that makes sense, um, oh. is, is a good quality to have, in my opinion. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. I mean, the idea being, you know, I, I was mainly just going extreme with my examples, right? There is some flash to Kobe Bufkin's game. I just meant more from the sense of he's someone who will play under control and make smart decisions rather than, you know what, I'm going to try this wild 70-foot outlet pass and let's just see how it goes, right? You know, it was more just, you know, he did have some flash in there, but it was, I felt a lot more like his passing was about making good decisions rather than this would look really cool on a highlight reel. Yeah, and... I think sometimes you need that because a lot of those flashy highlight reel passes, you don't 
if you notice, you don't really see them in the playoffs too often. Uh, in the playoffs, everything kind of slows down and things get tight and every possession becomes a little heavier. And, um, you know, the solid, correct, smart pass could end up leading to a bucket and end up, you know, leading to a win. So um, I'm with you. And I think it's actually a great strength of his. And I think NBA teams are going to see that and appreciate that and be excited to add that to their team. All right, we're going to take another quick break here, and then we will break down Kobe Bufkin's defense. All right, so let's now move to the other side of the ball and discuss Kobe Bufkin's defense. And you start out the defense section by saying he'll be good enough on defense. And I think that's about where I landed on it as well. You know, he's not going to be someone who earns the majority of his playing time because of his defensive play. But, you know, there are a lot of guys who play themselves off the court with bad defense. And, you know, I think it's the kind of thing where, in my mind, he'll settle in as comfortably below average. I think his hands are good enough. He's going to generate a lot of steals. He's going to help his defense that way. He's going to mostly make good decisions on the defensive end. His frame, you know, you mentioned that in terms of an area of concern for him in terms of his finishing around the basket. I think that's a lot more of a concern on the defensive end for him especially given that, you know, especially if he's more of a two in terms of where teams play him offensively, he's going to need to guard bigger guys. I'm not quite comfortable with that at the moment. But again, ultimately, I land in a similar place as you where he'll be good enough defensively, right? You know, he's not going to be a world beater on that end, but he doesn't need to be given what he can do on offense. Yeah, Um I think the strength thing is a major issue. Uh, major is a tough word. I, I think it is an issue. It's something he needs to work on. Um, a game that came to mind was the game against Illinois. Um, there were a couple of times that Terrence Shannon just kind of went at him, and I'm just like, hey, um, come on. Um, I wish this was better. But, you know, he's not a chest-to-chest power guy. He's not, he's not Davion is what I'm trying to say. He's not Davion Mitchell where he can just put his chest into somebody and move them and have them, you know, off their angle and making weird decisions. He, he's just not that guy. He doesn't have that physique or uh, power right now, but what he does have is he does have length. Um, I think if he's a one, he has pretty good positional size at six, four, who knows? You may even measure at six, four and a half, six, five. I'm not sure. I don't want to, I don't, I don't, I don't know for sure, but the length looks good. The wingspan is good. He uses his length well to contest shots and to recover. I don't think he has the fastest hands in the world, but they're fast enough. And his length definitely helps with that in that area. And um, as I mentioned before in my article, I mean, you mentioned it too. I, I think he's got really good hands. I think he's at lightning quick hands. He he made you know the the lives of ball handlers a little difficult with you know the ability to poke balls away and kind of just be a pest there with his quick and uh, number one long arms but also quick hands and i think think that's a nice combo to have but for sure adding mass and strength is going to help him but the the main point that i wanted to make about his physique and the strength and all that is that i think he has the frame to add mass he doesn't have narrow shoulders i think the shoulders are broad enough where you can see him adding mass and becoming a more like a stronger sturdier type of guy and if he can add that then i think he's going to be a good defender like i i'll never ever say he's going to be i don't think he's going to be matisse thibel davion mitchell you know pj tucker one of these guys um but i think he is going to hold his own if you know the body comes along and he continues to clean things up on that side of the of the ball but ultimately my main point was you're not really drafting him for defense um but at the same time he's not going to kill you on that end either even from year one in my opinion 
Yeah, I think that's the main point is you're not drafting him for his defense, right? You're just hoping that the defense will be good enough to justify his offense. And I think it sounds certainly like we're landing in a similar place with it where it's like, yeah, I think his defense will be acceptable enough that he can get on the floor and show what he can do on the offensive end. One part of his defense, though, that you do bring up that I do want to circle back to is his screen navigation is not good. And that is going to be a bigger deal for him at the NBA level than it was at the college level. I mean, man, he's just going to get leveled a lot on screens earlier on in his career. And, you know, the thing is, you mentioned, you know, pretty much all rookies are bad defensively year one. I mean, you know, you mentioned Davion Mitchell, which I'm personally very happy about. So I'm going to go back to that because I love talking about Davion Mitchell. You know, other than the Davion Mitchells and the Herb Joneses of the world, pretty much all rookies are somewhere between not good to atrocious on defense. And, I think Bufkin is going to be closer to not good than atrocious in the sense that like, you know, there, there are some guys who you just, you know, like Blake Wesley defensively, right. That's just not going to go well and has not gone well so far for him at the NBA level. But, you know, with Bufkin, I think, I don't know. I mean, I am really worried about the screen navigation stuff and certainly that's something he's going to get tested on a lot early on in his career. But, you know, ultimately if he can just, be okay enough on defense, you know, chip in a few steals, you know, do a decent enough job when he's not getting screened off. I think he'll play well enough to stay on the court, but you know, that's, that's really sort of the big concern for me with his defense early on, because that's the kind of thing that hopefully over time he'll get stronger. That'll be a little bit easier for him, but especially like his first few years in the league, that is not going to be fun to watch. Yeah, um, the screen. It's something I wrote about too. The the screen navigation stuff was um, was tough, and, and at times, like I was worried that he was going to get hurt, like the way that he was getting blasted on those screens. But you're right, and I think um, I think NBA teams are going to watch that film, and they're going to see that, and they, you know they they definitely have to work with him on that. But overall, just going back to the original point that we were making, it's just I, I feel like he the the length of the hands will be enough. Um, to keep him from being absolutely atrocious. He had some nice blocks last season, a couple chase downs, uh, a couple of blocks just, you know, but staying in front of his man and using his length to contest shots and getting a little tip here and there. And I think that type of stuff is valuable as well. And, you know, being able to poke the ball away for steals is nice too. And so I, I'm with you, man. I, he's just, that's not his marquee skill. It's not the reason why you're drafting him, but he should offer you enough where you don't hate him on that end. And it's funny you mentioned Blake Wesley because they, they've got another guy named Malachi Brandon who also struggled on that side of the ball as well. So um, I don't think he'll be either of those guys, in my opinion. Yeah, well, Corey Lamb asking me for Malachi Branham defense takes is, you know, something I didn't want to be reminded of today, but thank you for that. Yes, Malachi Branham also (laughs) struggles mightily on that end. Yeah, but I think something that, you know, Blake Wesley and Malachi Branham and also not to be unkind, but Kobe Bufkin's Michigan teammate, Jeff Howard, sometimes with those guys, you're worried about the effort. With Bufkin, you're not as much worried about the effort. Like he will dig in, he will try on the defensive end, but every once in a while he just gets leveled by a screen because he's, you know, kind of skinny, right? That I think is much less concerning in the long term than guys who you're just worried about whether they'll try enough on defense, period, right? Like with, you know, Brandon, certainly, you know, with Wesley as well, you know, Wesley, you and I have a particular, uh, particular fondness for, you know, when we were talking about him in summer league all the time, but you know, the idea being 
Some guys, you're worried about whether they'll actually ever put in the effort to be adequate defensively. With Bufkin, I'm much less worried about the effort than I am for some other guys. It's more just, again, you know, he's going to have a real strength deficit when he comes into the league. And even once he, you know, hopefully, and I think we both assume he will overcome that strength deficit to some degree, you know, even then, it's not like other than his hands, you know, you mentioned a lot on offense, he doesn't have elite burst, right? That's something that... I think especially given the way he plays offense, that it'll be much more of a concern on the defensive end than the offensive end. You know, it's the kind of thing where he does a lot better with, you know, finding the right angles on offense to sort of mitigate his athleticism concerns on the defensive end. That's a little more difficult for him, but it's the kind of thing where, you know, again, as we've mentioned and have repeatedly mentioned time and time again, he's not getting drafted for his defense. It just needs to be, good enough for him to not get played off the floor and especially when we get to like year three i think he'll be at a point where his defense comfortably settles in at below average right where he's more than good enough on offense to make up for it but he's not exactly going to be someone who's earning his playing time on the defensive end of the floor yeah yeah man i i agree with all of that i really do and i think um yeah he's gonna be okay He's going to be okay. And overall, just I, I think he's going to figure out enough. And I don't know, like you look at all, like ultimately it also comes down to like how high of a ceiling do you believe he has offensively too, right? Because sure. if he if he's like one of these like honest number one, number two options, then like, yeah, you can deal with the defense being bad. But overall, like with what you said, I think that the effort's going to be there and he showed the effort and the desire to try. And so as long as he's trying, I think he's going to be okay. And, you know, before we wrap things up here, let's just get into some of your comps here at the end of the article. And this is where I think the discussion that you just had really comes into play, right? If he hits, the higher end of his ceiling, you know, you're talking Mike Conley, Jalen Brunson, Jalen Brunson, Nick Van Exel as comps. And those are guys who, you know, all-star teams, like, you know, not all NBA type point guards, but like some of the marquee point guards, shooting guards of their eras in the NBA. And, you know, some of the lower baseline comps you have here, like Tyrese Maxey, Emmanuel Quickly, Malcolm Brogdon. I mean, Maxey became a 20 point per game scorer this year, right? But, you know, if we're talking about Quickly and Brogdon, those are guys who sort of fit into one of the potential roles I was talking about earlier for Buffkin, where it's like, these are two of the best six men in the league, right? Like Brogdon just won six man of the year quickly. If I'm remembering correctly, finished second. If he didn't finish second, he was certainly in the running for that award, right? Like that's a pretty good spot to end up with for Kobe Buffkin. And, you know, unless you're thinking of him as a lottery guy, which some people are admittedly, I'm not quite at the lottery level with him, but you know, if you're talking about like middle of the first round, I mean, Tyrese Maxey was a steal at 21. I think he was picked, right? If you're getting Buffkin in the 20 run one range and he turns out, you know, even a slightly lower ceiling version of Tyrese Maxey, that's still a really solid pick to get, you know, later on in the first round. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I just feel like he's going to be a guy that can make an all-star team or two, a guy who's going to be really solid, play a lot of playoff games. Um, and like just and the interesting thing is Nick Van Exel and Mike Conley have very similar career numbers. Uh, let me read them to you. Nick Van Exel for his career, 14.4 points per game, 6.6 assists, shooting splits of 40 percent, 36 or 35 percent and about 80 percent of the line. Mike Conley also 14 points per game, 5.7 assists per game, shooting splits, 43.9, 38.2 and 82 percent. And I feel like Buffkin can have that type of career. 
make an all-star team, maybe two, three all-star all-star teams. Um, maybe he makes an all NBA third team one day who knows, but overall, like I could see him being a really effective guard and um, a guy that's just, I think he's going to play a lot of playoff games and a guy who, whether he's starting or coming off the bench will add a ton of value because of all the different things he offers. And it's funny with Mike Conley in particular, because, you know, I think that, you know, these days he's been just such a long-term established force in the league that, you know, people forget that, you know, his first couple, his first few years in the league with Memphis, you know, he, like his rookie year, he was under 10 points a game, right? This wasn't someone who came in and immediately lit the league on fire. There were people who, you know, were concerned that Memphis maybe didn't make the right choice by extending him after his rookie contract, right? And clearly that worked out pretty well for both Mike Conley and Memphis. But, you know, I think ultimately if Kobe Lufkin comes into the league and, you know, takes a little bit longer to sort of warm up. I mean, he's not someone who's going to be going with the fourth overall pick like Mike Conley did, right? You know, that's the kind of thing where something that was viewed as slightly disappointing for Mike Conley might be seen as a pretty sizable success for, you know, for Kobe Buffkin. And if that's kind of the role that Kobe Buffkin has coming in, you know, takes a couple of years to really warm up and solidify himself as one of the better options in the league, then, you know, that would be a really, really fantastic career for someone who's probably not going to end up going in the lottery. Yeah, man. I, I'm with you. I'm with you. But it, like in a similar way, I just feel like even from day one, I think he's going to offer a lot of value. Yeah. Um, I just feel like he's a guy that NBA teams are going to get get into their gyms and be like, oh, we can figure out a role for him. And that is what's most exciting about it. And like the Nick Van Exel comp I get is a little bit different because Nick Van Exel was so flashy and fun when he first came into the league and a guy that did have like, a, you know, burst and juice to him. Um, really exciting passer as well. But, you know, o- over time, I, I think he... He played. He became a different type of player, and I could see Buffkin being like that as well. I think ultimately, where we're ending up on this discussion with Buffkin is there are multiple different angles we could see for him that work, right? And you know, if high end is like a one or two time All Star point guard, and low end is like a really key six man combo guard off the bench, either of those are pretty good values for where Buffkin is probably going to get drafted. And then the question just becomes where do you see that ceiling and how easy do you think it'll be for him to reach it? And for me, I think he's got a very high floor. You know, I think that I would be surprised if he doesn't stick around, you know, to at least a second contract as like a rotation piece, right? Like I think, you know, there are a lot of teams who could, you know, I said this many, many, many times this season with CD Sissoko, where I would be so happy if he just came in and took Terrence Davis's minutes. I would also be very happy if Kobe Bufkin came in and took Terrence Davis's minutes, right? There are so many teams in the league who could use him as like an eighth or ninth guy. And then the question with drafting him just becomes how much higher do you think his ceiling is and how likely do you think he is to hit it? And I think his ceiling is quite a bit higher than that. I think I just view it more as I think he's got a very safe floor and you know, I maybe I'm not as sold on the one or two all-star game type deal, but ultimately when you're picking in, you know, the late teens, early twenties of the draft, someone you're that confident in as a role player type guy is going to be a really solid pick to make there because at least you're not worried about him flaming out. Right. And I would be very surprised if Kobe Bufkin just flames out of the league before the end of his first contract. I actually, I, I see him as a lottery guy is where I'm at right now. Okay. Because- I can see it. I'm not quite there, but I can see it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, and for me, it's just because I feel like there's a higher ceiling there. Um, 
I feel like there's a world where he's like a 20, 22 point per game guy at seven assists per game and, you know, uh, playing major minutes in the playoffs. And if he can get to that level, I'm okay with taking him in the lottery is kind of where I've landed um, and where he'll be on my next big board that we have to submit. I actually don't know when we have to submit our next big board, but I think um, he's good. I think as of now, as we're speaking, I've moved him all the way up to 11. Uh, is where I'm at right now. And I think wow. he's a guy that I feel comfortable taking in that range just because I think um, I, I think there's, with what we saw in that small sample size uh, last season after the Howard injury and, you know, kind of taking on a different role or whatever, seeing more of that, it, it'll only get better, in my opinion. And I think on the next level with better coaching and, you know, his body developing and things like that, I think, I, I think, I think the ceiling's high. I really do. And I, and I would feel totally okay with taking him. If I was an NBA team in the lottery, I'd, I'd feel okay about taking him anywhere from like, I don't know, eight to 14. I'd be okay with that. Wow. I never thought I'd see the day when someone had no ceilings would love Michigan players even more than Tyler Metcalf. This is, this is a moment. <laughs> You're right, dude. It is weird. And I have Jed Howard in my top five and I'm, I think I'm the only one. So no. <laughs> So where's Hunter Dickinson? He's top 20 for you, right? <laughs> well, I mean, technically he's not a Michigan guy anymore. So there we go. There we go. So now, now you can drop him down your board. You had him at 20 before he hit the transfer portal, but now, now you can drop him into the eighties. Uh, oh God, I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Metcalf got there pretty quickly too. So I, I, I'd say you're a bit behind schedule actually. <laughs> no, but I, I over overall, I, I I liked his game a lot, and doing the deep dive and um, writing the article, it, I just kind of convinced myself more and more of like, okay, just take him in the lottery and don't feel bad about it, and he's going to be good. And even if he flames out, at least he took a shot on a guy who had a lot of different skills, and you know, someone who did shoot it well for a season in college, and a guy that was able to flash different skills. Like I, I'm okay with that. All right. Anything else you want to cover on this one before we wrap this up? No, I think I'm good. All righty then. Well, he is Albert Gim. You can find him on Twitter at Albert O. Gim. And you can, of course, find his written work on NoCeilingsNBA.com, as well as more of his podcasting work over on the Draft Act podcast. You can find me on Twitter at NBA Johnson. And I will be writing for Thursday. So the day after this comes out, we'll probably be doing another edition of Editor's Notes. Not 100% decided, but... Odds are that's what it'll be, so I'll be writing later this week. Feel free to check that out over at NoCeilingsNBA.com. And if you're not subscribed to NoCeilingsNBA.com, you should definitely do so. Totally free written content in your inbox five-plus days a week, so definitely go check us out there if you haven't already. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. That is always much appreciated on our end. And if you have any feedback on the deep dives portion of the podcast, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.